Exodus 34, 6 and 7, starting in verse 6. Read with me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Well done. We're in this series, God Has a Name, and it's based on two of the, one, some of the most profound verses in the Bible, and also two of the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. This is God's self-disclosure of himself, and, and what we've been doing over the last few weeks is just taking this text line by line and seeking to understand God on his terms. And the first thing that we learned is that God has a name, and it's not God. That's not his name. That is a, at best, a category or a label in ancient Hebrew times. And we knew that uh, God has a name uh, because there are many gods, lower G. There are many invisible but real spiritual creatures that inhabit the universe. And one of the ways God has, has set himself apart and made himself distinct is by giving himself a name and bringing his people in on that name and its meaning and his character and his nature. So we've been trying to understand why God needs a name in the first place and, and to learn about his character and his nature and how he's revealed himself to us. And right after the bat, after God proclaims his name to Moses, he starts letting him in on what he is like. So he says, this is my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord. And he goes on to describe what he is like. And the first thing right out of the gate is Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. Jeff, you can put that the previous slide right back up before. He is uh, compassionate and gracious or compassionate and merciful. And this is the first thing that we need to know about this God, Yahweh. And, and one of the important things to understand is, is in Hebrew literature, they didn't, have all, they didn't have bold or italics or underline or all caps. And so when they wanted to highlight something or bring significance to something, they did a couple of things. And one of the tricks they would use is to repeat something. And so we see the Lord, the Lord twice, or in the original text, Yahweh, Yahweh is repeated because Yahweh wants us to slow down and consider more deeply his name and its meaning. But also one of the tricks they would use is, is order. There's a priority in order. Things that went first were most important, and not only most important, but they kind of acted as an umbrella for everything else that comes afterwards. And so that God leads off saying he is merciful and gracious or compassionate and gracious means that is the umbrella in which everything we read has to come under, that comes after. And so as we read slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, etc., that is all under the umbrella of his mercy and and his grace. And after that, we got to dig in a bit on what it means that God is slow to anger. Steve did a phenomenal job for us a couple of weeks ago unpacking what it means that Yahweh is slow to anger, unpacking his, his long-suffering patience for us. And in this race between God's wrath and our repentance, our repentance always wins, that God is eager to forgive, and because he is, he is slow to anger. And DJ, if you were here last week, did an absolute phenomenal job talking about the 
the covenantal love of Yahweh, steadfast love for thousands, steadfast love and faithfulness. And what it means that God, Yahweh, has initiated a covenantal relationship with you and I, and that the the bounds and the terms of the covenant are on his shoulders to keep. And this long faithfulness he has towards us and what it looks like for us to be faithful to a God who is already faithful to us. And today, we get to the weird part. <laughs> to the, the part that maybe as we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, and as you guys have been memorizing this verse, if we've been teaching this verse, we get to verse 7, and we're like, whoa, this is where kind of the train goes off the rails a little bit. Because if we're reading, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, this sounds amazing. Slow to anger, yes, amen. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, I'm on board. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, this sounds great. For giving iniquity, transgression, and sin, okay, I'm loving this, I'm tracking, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, this is getting a little weird. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Wait a second, this just took a weird left turn out of nowhere. And so I don't know for you is as you've been processing through these couple of verses the last couple of weeks, if something about the end of verse 7 has not quite sat well with you. And, and that is okay. Do you remember at the, at the beginning of this series, one of our goals was to seek to understand God on his terms, not ours. Do you guys remember that conversation? How often we approach uh, God, how we approach church, how we approach the Bible, how we approach spirituality on our terms, when and where it's convenient for us, through the lens and filter in which is most comfortable for our worldview and how we already like to live life. And one of the challenges in this text was to come to God on his terms. Because this is his self-disclosure, his revelation of, of who he is that he himself is giving us, we have to leave everything else on the table. We have to leave our, our agendas, what we think about God, what we think about the church, what we think about Bible on the table and say, let us seek to understand God on his terms and how he has revealed himself to us. And this is one of those days where that challenge is really put to the test because it might be easier to skim or skip over parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable or that are confusing to us. But if we're skimming and skipping the parts of the Bible that freak us out and weird us out a little bit, what we end up doing is is creating a God that is simply a projection of our own wishful thinking. Right, so if we are reading the Bible and we're like, oh, coming across all these wars in the Old Testament, it's like, I don't know how I feel about a God who is leading people into wars, slaughtering other people, whatever, and we read the gruesome, grim, R-rated version of the story of God, we're like, I don't know how comfortable with I am, I'm going to skim over that. We create a God that is a projection of our own wishful thinking. If we come across the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is teaching that confront every type of person, whether you are ultra lefty, liberal, progressive, or you're all the way over here hard right conservative, you are bound to be offended by something in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to say, are we going to understand God on his terms or ours? Are we going to seek to understand God for who he is or just simply live with our own projection of a God made up of our own wishful thinking? John Mark Comer says this. He says, the nice thing about made-up gods is they agree with you on everything and let you live as you please. Unfortunately, they are incredibly boring and flat and humdrum because they don't actually exist. Then there's the even more terrifying possibility that you'll end up with a God who is real but isn't the one true creator God and who plays to your I-want-it-all-now desires only to turn on you once you're hooked in. 
a danger lies for us in approaching the Bible on our terms and approaching God on our terms. But if we press in and actually seek to understand God for who he is on his terms, I believe this text is, is quite a bit less messy than we think it is, and it's actually a really beautiful part of who God is. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to take verse 7 kind of piece by piece this morning and kind of go down the rabbit hole of what Yahweh is revealing about himself to seek to understand what is going on here. Does that sound like a game plan? Can we do that? Okay, we're doing it anyway. So let's start right at the top uh, verse of verse 7. The line starts with keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now that's my translation. I read out of the ESV, study out of the ESV. Uh, and actually, in the NIV, it's translated just a little bit differently. It's translated maintaining love to thousands. And I actually believe that gives us a, a bit more of a helpful picture for what is going on here. When, maybe, maybe it's just me, but maybe you also, when you read keeping, you, your mind immediately goes to uh, like a, a passivity. So you, God is keeping his love for thousands in the same way that you keep Christmas decorations in a box for 11 months out of the year. Like they're stored there, they exist, like they're, they're there and you can get it out when you need to, but you really don't think about it until it's time to really open up that box and deal with it. Right? And I think a lot of this is filtered by uh, kind of our Western culture and the enlightenment of the last few hundred years and this idea that there is a creator God out there, but we maybe function in a more deistic point of view where he created things and then kind of let things roll on their own. Uh, and I believe when we, when we read keeping love for thousands, it brings to mind some of the passivity that we accidentally believe about God, that he's not intimately connected or, or he's not divinely intimately caring about who you are and the, the multifaceted parts of your life. And, and I love Love what the NIV here does is he says maintaining love to thousands. And that, that root word here in the Hebrew is natsayer in Hebrew, which just simply means to protect or to guard. And so it's a much more like aggressive, proactive word here in the original text. And so that's why I love maintaining, because God's not just keeping his love, like you keep your Christmas decorations in a box. He's actively maintaining it, like kind of like a classic car, right? John, you just got a beetle. That's going to take a bit of maintaining. It's going to take a bit of work, right? It's going to run great for a little while because your dad did a phenomenal job with it, but eventually something's going to go wrong. Some belt is going to snap. Some, like, knob is going to, something with the electrical, something is going to go wrong where you have to, like, get in there in your garage and tinker with it and maintain it. And that word in the original Hebrew kind of even has a, a more proactive side to it where it's like an active, like a guarding of something, like protecting something that you love. Like once again, maybe like an imagery of, of uh, parents if you have kids, like how you maintain your children is more than just keeping them alive, but you actually are protecting them and, and guarding them and fencing them in and giving them a better way of life. And that's kind of the imagery here is that he wants to, Yahweh wants to make sure that you get his love, right? It's not a static thing that you can choose to check in or check out or opt in or opt out of, but he wants to make sure that you get his love, his covenantal love. He's maintaining this love. But the other part of that, that verse is, is not just for you, it's for thousands. And whenever we come across that word thousands in the Old Testament, it's like you can swap it out for like 
a billion kajillion, right? It's like kind of just meant to evoke a huge number, like an incalculable number, like something that's so massive and out of scale that he is maintaining this love not just for you but for thousands, that his love is endless and boundless and overflowing. So keeping steadfast love for thousands. And then paired with his overflowing love is his overflowing forgiveness. And the line reads, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. What does Yahweh forgive? Everything. He forgives iniquity, transgression, sin. These are the three most common words used in the Old Testament to describe like the the spectrum of human depravity and fallenness. And so each word kind of brings something different to the table. That first word, iniquity, might be translated as wickedness, depending on what translation you have here. And it's this word, avon, in Hebrew. And it's this kind of junk drawer term that basically means any kind of bad behavior. So all the way from, like, cutting someone off in traffic to genocide. And everything in the middle. It's like just the sweeping awfulness of humanity, all in one term. It's the generic term for just kind of anything bad that leaks out of humans. So iniquity, wickedness. And the second word here is transgression, or uh, depending on your translation, maybe rebellion. Both are great, and this, it's this word pasha in the Hebrew, and it's a legal term. So it's a term that would be used in a courtroom. It means to break the law, right? So it goes beyond just like cutting someone off, but it's getting a ticket for speeding, right? And it's this idea that you know the boundaries and you have gone outside of those boundaries. Like, you know the, the limits of, of your life, the, the rule of law, how God has commanded us to live, like all of those things, and then we actively choose to go beyond those boundaries, and that's what this word pasha is. And the third word here is sin in most every translation. It's this word hata. And actually, in, in Moses' time and place, this word sin did not necessarily have moral implications to it. Like when you and I think sin, we think, oh, you're being a bad person. That was not necessarily the the weight and the meaning that this word carried with it. It was more like an archer pulling the bow back and aiming for his target and just missing the bullseye. This idea of missing the mark. And so it's maybe with good intentions, maybe not with good intentions. It's this kind of like just missing what the ideal is. It's to miss the bullseye. And, And these three words paired together are like, tripleted together here, kind of are meant to give us a picture of just like, what does Yahweh forgive? He forgives all sorts of things. He forgives even uh, any sort of bad behavior, any part, any bad part of humanness that leaks out. He forgives when you break the law, his law or the, the laws of this world, and to miss the mark. Even if you have good intentions, but you're missing what the ideal is, God forgives all of it. And not only does he forgive all of it, but he is forgiving all of it. If you noticed that phrase, it's not a past tense word, forgave or forgiven. It is active. He is forgiving. He is forgiving all sorts of sin. He is forgiving all sorts of iniquity and wickedness. He is forgiving all sorts of transgression and rebellion. And he is forgiving all sorts of sin. And we have this picture of Yahweh who is a God itching to forgive people of all sorts of things. So you just woke up this morning and you came here. So you might not have had too much time. But chances are you have already avond, pashad, or hatad this morning. 
in some capacity. Like you've already missed the mark in some capacity. You broke the law of speeding coming here, or you've already had some sort of wickedness or bad behavior well up in you, and it's only 10 a.m., right? And God is actively, eagerly itching to forgive all sorts of stuff, anything. Anything you bring to the table, anything you bring to the table in repentance, God is itching to forgive. Heavyweight Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart says he does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. This is not something God does. This is something God is. In his very nature is a forgiving God. When we think of God, do we think of a God eager to forgive everything? Even just like a, like just to dig a little deeper, when you think of God, when you think of Yahweh, are you thinking of a God who is eager to forgive you for every messed up thing in your life? Everything that's been done to you, everything you've done, every time you've missed the mark, every time you've broken some commandment or law, every time you've had some impure thought or behavior or whatever, do you think of a God who is eager to forgive you? This is what Yahweh wants us to know about himself. He is constantly itching to forgive. It's like DJ reminding us last week, in a race between God's wrath and anger and your repentance, your repentance always wins. Like in a race of who's going to get there first, God is eager to receive our repentance and meet that with forgiveness. But there's another side. Maybe we're tracking so far. A loving God to thousands, everyone, this sounds amazing, itching to forgive, all sorts of stuff. Oh, this is sounding great. And we get to the next phrase, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And this is starting to touch home because you know you and I are guilty of all sorts of stuff. And the idea behind these two phrases together forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, that they go right next to each other, is that God in his nature, in his posture, is an endlessly forgiving God, but is also a God of justice. He's also a God who's perfectly just. And what happens when his forgiveness and his justice butt heads? Yahweh's justice isn't about retribution or paid back. You know, I ought to be careful how I describe it here, but I'm always frustrated with people who, like, there's an earthquake or a fire, and they say, this is God's judgment. This is his perfect judgment coming to play. This is perfect justice. And I'm always very nervous and very hesitant about that because the posture of God throughout the story of God is a forgiving God. But what do we do with his justice? What do we do with the fact that we worship a holy God and we are sinful, broken humans? What do we do with that? Yahweh's justice isn't just about retribution or payback or some kind of vendetta. It's his healing and renewal of all things. This, God's, God's plan, God's mission is a world without evil and injustice and suffering and pain. That is his, that is his mission. That is what he is on about. And, and we like that. We want that. We, we yearn for justice in this world. We think maybe daydream is a world without evil even possible. And for followers of Jesus, yes, it absolutely is possible. 
A world without evil and pain and injustice is absolutely possible. It's what we are longing for, or in the language of Paul and Romans, is what we are groaning for. We are groaning when God comes back and makes all things right. And we yearn for a world without pain or suffering or backstabbing and betrayal or heartache. And every day we wake up and open our news app and we see the world is not all it should be. Right? Or we, or we wake up feeling the weight of broken relationships that have gone before. Or walk into a job where you just feel reviled and have tension with your boss and just feels like, the, like kind of you just ha- reach this cul-de-sac and there's nowhere to go. Or just when you hit a wall with your kids and don't know how to parent them in this new stage of life, you're getting a huge fight with your spouse or whatever it is, we think the world is not as it should be. We yearn for something better. We yearn for something greater. And this is the kingdom of God that we cry out for without mourning or crying or pain or suffering, the language of revelation. And every time we see like a genocide in another war-torn country, we say there has to be something better. Someone has to do something about this. When we see innocent people killed, marginalized, oppressed to keep a small, wealthy population comfortable and happy, we say something has to change. Somebody has to do something about this. We see another person who has swindled and conned an elderly person out of their life savings and retirement. We think there has to be something to be done about this. Somebody has to change this. Somebody has to do something. And the biggest, one of the bigger temptations in our time and our place, I think, is actually wanting those things, all those attributes of the kingdom of God where things are made right and there is justice and there is harmony and there is unity and we want that kingdom and we try to get that kingdom apart from the king. So if we think if we just like vote for this person or if we don't vote for this person or if we just, I don't know, recycle or eat vegan, or whatever, like whatever it is, all, all fine things, but we think these things will bring about a more perfect world. And that's just not true. The reality is the world will always be lacking and left wanting without Jesus. Always. We yearn for a better world, for something more than what we have here where injustice is made right. And that will never happen apart from Jesus. We want the kingdom. And we try to go after it without the king. And the truth of scripture is it's the king who brings the kingdom. We want to live in a world without pain, without suffering, without evil. And one day we will as Christians. That is our hope of glory. Reunited with Christ in the flesh living in a perfect new creation. And this is God's plan for the world to root out sin and evil, to bring redemption and reconciliation. And it will happen, and it will happen because Yahweh is both forgiving and Yahweh is just. And because Yahweh is forgiving, we don't have to cower in the corner, scared of an unpredictable God, and dread Jesus' return. We can take our wickedness, our rebellion, our sin, lay them at the feet of the cross and experience real forgiveness. And we don't have to cower at the name of God, we can enjoy the access we have because of the work of Jesus. Because he defeated sin and death and the work of the enemy on the cross, triumphing over them, it's the language of Colossians 2, triumphing over the enemies. He brings us new life and redemption 
and forgiveness. And because Yahweh is just, we can look forward to the day when Jesus returns with gladness and joy, making everything right, redeeming and restoring humanity and all creation, and where Jesus defeats evil and sin once and for all. And that is the gospel, his forgiveness and justice, all wrapped up into one messy, beautiful, confusing hope of glory that you and I have. But we still have this troubling part at the end, don't we? Right? If we're on board with the justice of God, we say he's, he's showing love, maintaining love to thousands, to everyone. He's forgiving all sorts of sinfulness and human behavior, and he won't clear the guilty. His justice will win. There will be a moment when we can experience no pain, no evil, no suffering on earth in new creation. We get to this next phrase that we don't really know how to reconcile. Visiting the iniquity or the wickedness of the fathers on the children and the children's children. This is where it gets a little weird, right? Did you guys come across this first and you're like, what the heck is going on here? Did you? You guys maybe are way smarter than I am. I came across this as we were studying. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The children and the children's children? What is going on here? I think actually we have to start with what this can't mean, Right? It can't mean what it says at face value in our English translation. That Yahweh punishes kids for the sins of their parents. Here's why. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Just a few pages over to the right. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Keep going. It's always one more book over than you think it is. You always forget. Numbers comes first, then Deuteronomy. There you go. 24 verse 16. This is Moses writing, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. We're not going to unpack the fullness of that verse here, but do you notice the, con- the seeming contradiction here in what's happening in Exodus 34? Check over to Jeremiah, the prophet's commentary on this passage in Exodus 34. You can flip there if you want. Jeremiah 32, verse 18 and 19. Jeremiah says, you show steadfast love to thousands. Familiar language, right? Does it sound familiar? Yeah? You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to the children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord, or Yahweh, of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man. Look at this last bit. Rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of of his deeds. So if Yahweh is not saying that because grandpa messed up, Yahweh's coming after you, what is Yahweh saying here? And track with me here, because we're going to get in the weeds a little bit. There's a couple of layers to help us understand what is happening here. And so track with me. The first layer is that the parent's sin has consequences for the children's future. That's worded really carefully. The parent's sin has consequences for the children's future. And this actually may seem obvious once you throw it up on the screen and look at it, right? The choices that parents make have lifelong effect and impact on their kids, positive and negative, right? If parents get busted for selling drugs, right, the kids get taken away and put in the foster care system, not with the family they were intended to be with. But if parents get a divorce, the children now walk in a broken family for the rest of their lives, not experiencing the fullness of what God had intended. When, when the parents sin, children are the collateral damage. 
And as a parent, if you have not thought about this and felt the weight of this, I think you're crazy. Like at least once a week, I have a reflection on everything awful I've done. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to be paying for therapy my kids later. Like, I don't know what, this is going to be crazy. You know, like, well, it's just no hope. Jesus is my hope. I don't know what I'm going to do about my kids. And maybe you've thought about that too. Like you look back on a life and you're like, oh gosh, I'm just messing up my kids. I, they're never going to forgive me for this. This is so awful, you know. That's what we thought when we were sharing and I coming in to plant a church. We're like, oh gosh, we're going to have one of those pastor's kids. I'm going to mess up this kid forever. And it's, I mean, I'm in jest, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually serious. Like the decisions and the way of consequences are, are real. Like your actions as parents affect your kids. Maybe not directly, but they're going to live in the outflow and collateral damage of your life, good or bad. Now, the next layer, a little bit deeper, is that sin, like DNA, life, habits, and patterns, runs in the family. Like all the other things that make you, you, you get passed down in the family a spiritual heritage, positive or negative. One generation sin often becomes the next generation sin. You don't have to spend much time in the Old Testament to see that play out with the people of God. One generation's idolatry becomes the next generation's idolatry. Generational sin is the father who is an alcoholic that has a son who's an alcoholic as well. There's something unexplainable, scientific about how that happens. You're not bound by that forever. There's not no way out, but it is a bit of the default posture. We like to think of babies as kind of a blank canvas, right? We just had our uh, Emerson's one-year-old birthday, which is at the end of summer, and we, you know, go back and we look through all the pictures of when we're in the hospital and, and the super extreme crazy. I, Emerson, I got to actually deliver myself, which was really fun. Uh, I got to put on, like, the, the whole garb and everything, put on the hat, and got to catch the baby. It's not really catching. I'll get a little graphic. It's like pulling a baby. You're not catching anything. You're yanking something out of another person. It's really crazy. But it's, I mean, I'm just, like, weeping, and it's a crazy, crazy moment, and we're sitting there holding, like, a one-minute-old baby. I think, oh, what a a blank canvas she has not like, you know, I haven't done anything awful to her yet. Like, this is perfect. Like, I haven't sinned against her in any way. She hasn't seen bad parenting anyway. All she, I'm the hero who saved her from the inside of mom's belly. You know, like, this is going to be great. And she's a blank canvas. And she's not. Like her blonde hair she gets from somebody else in the family. And her blue eyes she gets from somebody else. And her big cheeks that she gets from somebody else. She's got dimples. I have dimples. That's, That's what I passed on. But like all of that stuff, Other spiritual stuff gets passed down in families as well. That's why so many of the instructions in the Bible to parents, especially in the Hebrew Bible, but in the New Testament as well, is about parents teaching their kids and passing down a good spiritual legacy, combating the default nature of human brokenness. A quick survey, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Yahweh says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, these laws, like who God is, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. All that is to say, like, all the time. Like, when you're lying down, when you're walking, when you're sitting, everything, everywhere, all the time, you are teaching your kids about who God is. 
Just a few chapters later, almost a repeat verbatim. You shall teach these to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In Proverbs, this is a commonly misunderstood verse. It's not so much a, like a, a promise that like, you can bank on in terms of like if you put your kids in Sunday school, they'll turn out all right. But this is for the parents, a high call and commission to train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In the New Testament, Paul picks up on some of this and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We can't escape our family and their sins and their habits and their rhythms any more than we can escape our DNA. But through the power of Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross, we can break generational sin that has come before us. It is possible by addressing it, acknowledging it, not hiding, not living in ignorance, by acknowledging it, by repenting, And turning from those behaviors, you can break the generational sin that has plagued your family and mine, whatever that is. It will not happen if you ignore it. Like generational sin does not go away if you just pretend it doesn't exist. Whatever the the gods or the idols that your parents worship, whatever the, the root sin in their lives, whatever Satan and his demons have like held on to and like got a, a hook in and a foothold in, like those things do not go away just by wishing them away or forgetting that they are there. They're there. And you, as someone bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus, by acknowledging what is there, the prejudices, the racism, the idol worship, the bias, whatever it is that you feel like you might inherit, you address it, repent of it. Listen, even if you've not walked in that yet, there's a whole thing of corporate repentance we're not even going to get into, but go read Ezra and Nehemiah. Like, as, as what it means to repent for a nation. Look at Isaiah, who says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I walk amongst the people of unclean lips. Like, even your dad is an alcoholic and has wreaked havoc on your family, even if you are not yet walking in that, acknowledge it, repent from it, and turn and live a different way. There is a way out of generational sin, because God is eager to forgive. He is looking for opportunities to forgive. So as you look back, reflect and repent and move forward in a different way, this is not only for you to break the generational sin, but you are playing a part in God's bigger story of rooting out sin and evil in this world. Like, do you you know that? It's not not just for you, so you can be a better person, so you can like live a different kind of, yes, those things are true. It's for your sanctification. It's so you can set a different way for you and those who will come after you, but it's also you playing a role in God making all things right. It's, it's you playing a role in God rooting out sin and evil and injustice one family at a time. You have a part to play in this. You are taking part in Yahweh's mission of rooting out sin and evil. And we get to partner with him in his justice. We get to partner with him in this justice by making war with our own sinfulness. And the final layer here in this phrase is that because Yahweh is just, he will continue to punish sin in each generation until it's gone. Like, he is not done until he's done. Put another way, don't think that because God punished your dad for drinking too much, you're off the hook for your drinking situation. We can't so quickly absolve ourselves. 
God will punish you in the same way he's punished your father and the same way he punished your grandfather. Because his end goal is to root out sin and evil and injustice in the world. And he won't stop until it's all rooted out. This is the moment to acknowledge how weird and terrifying this is. Right? Yeah, the room got a little quieter once we ended on that last layer. But this is where it gets good. The last part of the phrase, to the third and the fourth generation. Here's where all this ties in together. The word, first of all, in your Bible, generation, is not actually in there in the original Hebrew. There's a word that's added in to make us English readers a little bit more comfortable with the text here. But the problem is that, like, it kind of masks some of what is going on here. And many, many scholars point out that Exodus 34 has this poetic rhythm to it, that much of the Old Testament is both literal and there's something else going on here. Like there's a a playfulness, artfulness, and poetry in the Hebrew language that we don't quite understand thousands of years later. And whatever word in this particular poetic structure that comes after thousands also comes after to the third and the fourth. That's how this rhythm works out. So it could read, maintaining love to thousands of generations and punishing the children to the third and fourth generations. Simultaneously, it could also read, maintaining love to thousands punishes the children to the third and the fourth. You see the picture that's starting to develop here as we work through all of Exodus 34. It's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, keeping steadfast love for thousands, maintaining this covenantal love with us, forgiving all sorts of sins. He is just. He doesn't clear the guilty. His perfect justice will happen, and he is on a mission to root out sin and evil. But once again, in a race between our repentance and his wrath, our repentance wins. God is eager to forgive. That is posture. All throughout these two verses, we have an overwhelming picture of a God who loves to forgive, loves to give opportunities to put his mercy on display. And it's, it's maybe have a, have a bit of a scale in your mind. Think of like Lady Justice, right? Think of like Lady, she's blind, right? She's got the thing on her and she's holding two things and kind of going back and forth. And, but imagine the scale is quite a bit more uneven, like, like this right here. Like, imagine one side is disproportionately uneven. Like, silly uneven. Like, it has no chance uneven. Yahweh forgives for thousands. And remember that word? It's not just a literal thousand. It's like a billion kajillion. Like, infinity. He's overwhelmingly forgiving, endlessly forgiving, 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 over and over and over again. And there's justice, and it's perfect, and it's true, but his mercy is overwhelming. Or like the writer James in the New Testament puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yahweh is just, and this is good news, because the world is not all it should be. This is good news. That's why we can look forward to a better tomorrow. But he's also forgiving. He cannot help but show his mercy. It's who he is. And when his justice and his mercy bump up against each other, when they conflict and bang heads and square off, mercy wins. Not in a, like, all roads lead to heaven kind of mercy wins. But in a, in Jesus, in the way Yahweh has revealed himself, he is eager to forgive and show mercy. And there is justice. Remember the story of Jonah. We unpacked that a few weeks ago. Like, 
Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, just the worst of the worst kinds of people living in like tribal ancient Near East. God sends Jonah. He says, go, give them my message that I've seen all their evilness, their wickedness, everything, and I'm wiping them all out if they do not repent. Right? This is his plan, but he says, I, I will forgive them if they repent. And Jonah famously goes throughout the town giving like the worst and shortest message forever. You guys are all going to die in 40 days. And whatever happens there, they repent. Like the king himself puts on sackcloth, leads the people in repentance. Even the cows were repenting, or thereabouts. And God shows mercy. He relents. He rehums. He shows mercy to people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. His justice is perfect and evident and what brings about a new kingdom. But on his way there, he is showing mercy to all. Forgiveness is available to all. New life in him is available to all. Paul says, would call on the name of Jesus. Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Sin is unforgiving and merciless and cruel and racked with consequences. We need to take sin way more seriously as Christians. It is so easy to brush off and make light of our own sinfulness. Does God forgive? Is there redemption and forgiveness and healing in Jesus? Does he wipe the slate clean and help people start over? Yes and amen, over and over again. I've seen it in scripture and I've seen it in my own life. Absolutely. God is perpetually forgiving, but sin has consequences. Sin is dehumanizing. And Yahweh will deal with our sin in our lives one way or another. We might not take it all that seriously, but God takes it really seriously. To the point of death, literally. This is why Jesus died on a cross. For you and for me and all humanity. Sin is dehumanizing. I don't know if there's a better word for it. It makes us less than what we are. It makes us something less than human. When we sin, we become less than human and miss the mark of all that our creator God had intended for our lives. And that's why God usually doesn't have to lift a finger to punish our sin because our sin is usually its own consequence and punishment. John Mark Comer says the punishment for porn is a warped mind, an inability to see women or men as anything other than objects for your own lust, a breach of intimacy with your spouse, and an erosion of sexual pleasure. The punishment for lying and cheating is that eventually you get caught. You always get caught. And the house of cards that is your life comes apart in seconds. The punishment for gossip is that eventually people stop trusting you. And you're left not only spiteful and angry and cynical, but alone, with a ghosting ignorance of what other people are saying about you, and paranoia becomes your regular state of mind. And when we keep on sinning and sinning and rebelling against God and ignoring his guidance and direction and forgiveness available, in spite of his own mercy, we risk the hand of God against us. The Bible writers talk a lot about the fear of God, the fear of Yahweh. Have you noticed this phrase before that's come up? This phrase is used all over the place in the Bible. Has that phrase ever stood out to you as odd? 
seems like incongruent with what we read about God, who wants us to come to him like children to a father. But the fear of Yahweh is present. There's a story with the prophet Isaiah. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. Beautiful story. Isaiah chapter 6. It's kind of the beginning of the book of Isaiah and uh, sets as a bit of a framework and, and posturing and positioning for everything that comes after. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah writing, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah taken up in this vision, and he sees the Lord upon a throne. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one to the other called and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Imagine the picture. Imagine the movie remaking scene of Isaiah chapter 6. Like the epic throne room, God on his throne. All these weird, strange creatures worshiping and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he speaks and it fills the whole room and the whole thing is filled with smoke. And you have this picture of like, there's this epic, like kind of dwarfing picture of all who God is. And look at verse 5. Look at how Isaiah responds to everything he's seeing. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And aware of his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, he has a healthy fear of Yahweh in his presence. Right? He is, his reaction is entirely appropriate in this moment. And seeing the full glory and holiness of God on display, he is intimately aware of his own sinfulness, and his reaction is very appropriate. Then, verse 6, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So in that moment, Isaiah, aware of his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, needs atonement. And here in this picture, it's the the, the vision of of a coal touching his lips, cleansing, and his sin has been atoned for. Isaiah had a healthy fear of the Lord because of his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people and needed atonement. The, The fear of the Lord is the awareness of your sin before a holy God. The Proverbs, this instruction manual for wise living, begins in Proverbs 1, verse 7, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, depending on your translation. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The beginning of knowledge, wisdom, maturity, growth is the fear of the Lord. But did you guys know there's actually a bit of a mirror to that story of Isaiah in the New Testament? With Isaiah, he's taken into the throne room, He's aware of his own sinfulness between a holy God. He has a fear of the Lord, and he is atoned for in in that moment where the seraphim brought the coal. And there's a bit of a mirror to that same story in the New Testament. And that's in Revelation chapter 1. John, the apostle, John, one of the closest to Jesus, has a similar vision where he's brought up into a throne room. And in verse 12, then I 
turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his hand, he held seven stars. From the mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Once again, like imagine, a movie's got to be made about some of this stuff. Like just picture the scene that is happening right here, the descriptive language of John and what he's seeing in his vision. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Similar reaction to Isaiah. Falls on his face. I'm not worthy. I'm sinful. I come from a sinful people. But look how this moment is different. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Jesus tells John, You don't have to fear me. Behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm the first and the last and the living one. John has this similar reaction to Isaiah. I don't belong here. I'm not worthy. He freaks out, falls down on his face. And Isaiah's reaction to being in the presence of God was appropriate. Isaiah should have been struck dead. God sent an angel on his behalf to cleanse him and atone. But in Jesus' reaction to John, God the Son himself reaches out to John, lays his hand on his shoulder, and says, I died and I am alive. Get up and write. And we have the rest of the book of Revelation. While Isaiah's reaction was appropriate, Jesus is telling John to get up. I have paid the final atonement. You don't need to be atoned. I have done that already. Walk in new life. The only atonement needed has already taken place in Jesus. And he reminds them here, now, he is the Christ and he belongs confidently in the presence of God. No cleansing, like no other rituals, no other atonement. He belongs because of what Jesus has done. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified, once again, one of those legal type phrases to help give us a picture of what is going on here. Our record of debt stood against us. Jesus nailed it to the cross. He is our righteousness. He is our propitiation, our replacement, our substitute. And we are justified in his grace as a gift. You can bring all the good and the bad and the pain and the success and the failure and the hope and the dreams that that are your life to Jesus here and now, and you can give it to him and in turn receive mercy and forgiveness. You can become a daughter or a son with full access to the Father, with nothing standing between you and the presence of God, all your sin gone, overdone. Does sin still wreak havoc on our lives? Yes. Are there still consequences? Yes. But we have forgiveness and atonement in Jesus. One more Bible flipping moment. Go over to Joel, one of those prophets in the Old Testament we skip over all the time. I kind of want to end 
with a bit of Joel, hijack some of the same language from Exodus 34 and verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. It's true that sin is incredibly cruel, and it's true that when we sin, we often lose some of the blessing that God has intended for our life. But it's even more true that Yahweh is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving every kind of sin imaginable if you return, if you run back to the Father. We can repent and experience new life. We can go from fearing God's justice to reveling in it. We can break free of the generational sin that has wreaked havoc on our families. We can experience forgiveness and grace and mercy through Jesus because his mercy outweighs our sinfulness. And as we start to kind of land this teaching series through these couple of verses, maybe there are a couple of questions nagging at you. Like, how does this change how we live in the world? Seven weeks spent on these two verses about who God is. What does that do to us and how we live our lives? What do we do with all of this? How does this affect my life, my job, my family? How are we actually supposed to live in light of this? And that is all next week. That's all we're doing next week is seeking to answer some of those questions. And maybe the other question I want to answer is another one that's been nagging at us is how does this change how we relate to God? If this is God's self-disclosure of himself, this is him saying, this is who I am. Not only this is who I am, this is what I want you to know about me. If that's what God is doing here, how does that change how we relate to God? When you think of Yahweh, do you think of a God who is eager to forgive? What if we responded to Yahweh as a loving father responds to his kids. What if? Eager to forgive, ready to give good gifts to his kids. What if we knew he wanted us to come to him in confidence, not cowering in the corner, but boldly, not because of anything you did or anything about who you are, but because what Jesus has already done, granting us access to the Father in one spirit. What if we actually lived a life of repentance, knowing that we are in relationship with Yahweh, who's maintaining love to thousands and eager to forgive? What would a life and lifestyle of repentance look like? And I'll even, just like a tag on here, moms and dads, what would it look like for you to model that life for your kids? To apologize and repent when you've lost your cool, when you mess up when you've done something to your spouse? What kind of legacy do you think that might shape in your kids? Throughout this series, this is God's revelation of himself. But even more important, this is God telling us what we should know about him. 
and how we should treat him in light of that. And the call here is to not treat Yahweh like all of those other people treat all of those other gods, but to know Yahweh is different. And when we approach him, we're not approaching an unpredictable God. We don't know how he's going to react when we confess. We know how he's going to react when we confess and repent. What would it look like to worship a God like that? We're not trying to worship to earn or curry any favor and make sacrifices so that he doesn't smite us, but living in the full weight and beauty and ocean of his forgiveness. What would it look like to freely worship a God like that?